Did you know that 80% of our immune system resides in the gut? It's true, which means mucosal immunity is one of the most important factors in determining overall immune health. The mucosal barrier is at the center of interactions between the immune system and the outside world. An overabundance of microbes or toxins can and often do overload and trigger negative immune reactions, which have sweeping effects throughout the body. Fortunately, we can protect ourselves with something called SBIgG. SBIgG is the only purified, dairy-free source of immunoglobulin G, IgG, available as a dietary supplement. Pure IgG helps to maintain a healthy intestinal immune system by binding a broad range of microbes and toxins within the gut lumen. Simply put, when the toxins are bound to SBIgG, they cannot interact with our immune system and we're better protected from illness and disease. Free from dairy, saturated fats, cholesterol, sugars, GMOs, hormones, and antibiotics, SBIgG is a safe choice for all patient types. With over 40 human clinical trials for a broad range of patient types, SBIgG is my go-to choice to help support the immune cells in our GI tract. This comes in a powder or capsule version. Use code IgG for 10% off at yourlongevityblueprint.com. There's four main categories of triggers I chat about. Food, stress, chemicals, and then the fourth category of triggers, infections. Welcome to the Your Longevity Blueprint Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Gray. My number one goal with the show is to help you discover your personalized plan to build your dream health and live a longer, happier, truly healthier life. You're about to hear from Dr. Eric Osmansky. Today, we're going to discuss how to optimize your thyroid and immune health as most thyroid conditions are autoimmune in nature, how to overcome thyroid autoimmunity through diet and lifestyle factors, the relationship between diet, chronic stress, and environmental toxins, and thyroid health. Now, we've already talked a lot about low thyroid on this show, but today we're going to focus more on high thyroid conditions like Graves' disease. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of the Your Longevity Blueprint Podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Eric Osansky, who's a chiropractor, clinical nutritionist, and a certified functional medicine practitioner who helps people recover from thyroid and autoimmune thyroid conditions. He's the author of the books Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves' Disease and Hashimoto's Triggers, and is the host of the Save My Thyroid podcast. Dr. Osansky was personally diagnosed in 2008 with Graves' Disease, and after taking a natural treatment approach, has been in remission since 2009. After seeing how well natural treatment methods helped with his condition, he began using these natural thyroid treatment protocols to help others with different types of thyroid and autoimmune thyroid conditions, including hyperthyroidism and Graves' disease and hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Welcome to the show, Dr. Osansky. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Stephanie. Uh, Appreciate you having me and excited to be here. Well, tell us your backstory. I don't know too many people with hyperthyroidism. So how did you become such a specialist in these conditions? And tell us your story about Graves' disease. Yeah. So in 2008 is when I began my hyperthyroid Graves disease journey. You know, one day I was walking around a Sam's Club. They had one of those automated blood pressure machines. And, you know, I decided to take my blood pressure. My blood pressure was fine, but my resting heart rate was elevated. And at the time, I wasn't sure maybe it was because I was walking around a Sam's Club. But, you know, the next few days, I took my resting heart rate and it remained elevated. And anywhere between like 90 and 110 beats per minute. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it wasn't like crazy, crazy high. Some people have it like 140, 150 beats per minute. But still, for me, that was high. Usually it was like in the mid 60s, you know, like a high would be like lower 70s. So something definitely was not right. And so what I skipped over was prior to that, a few months before I was exercising. Well, I was always exercising, but I was dieting and detoxifying and probably do more exercising than I usually did. And just because uh, uh, a few months prior was a little bit in a weight department, a little bit more than I wanted to be. So I was trying to lose weight, trying to you know live a healthier lifestyle. But, uh, you know, so I was losing weight, had increased appetite. I did have some of the signs and symptoms of hyperthyroidism, but I attributed it to, you know, the exercising and weight uh, and the detoxifying and the, the strict diet. And so it wasn't until I had the elevated heart rate when, you know, I was like, okay, something else is going on. And uh, then shortly after that, went to a primary care doctor, got diagnosed with hyperthyroidism. And then um, after that, I went to an endocrinologist who tested me for the for Graves, uh, did the antibody test for Graves and 
you know, test the positive that did an ultrasound as well, which that actually looked good. But yeah, you know, at the time, I didn't know much about hyperthyroidism and Graves' disease. Uh, but one thing I did know was I was going to take a natural approach. And the reason for that, not just my background being a chiropractor, but even though I'm a chiropractor, when I went through chiropractic, well, actually, when I was practicing chiropractic, which, you know, right now I'm just focusing on the functional medicine side of things. But back then, my continuing education credits, I always, always would take nutritional courses. And I actually attended a few functional endocrinology courses where they spoke about treating thyroid conditions naturally. And so, you know, I didn't know if I would be successful in doing that, but I'm like, you know, but I, I knew I didn't want to take the conventional approach, at least initially. I figured, well, if I could always start out by following a natural treatment protocol, natural treatment methods. And, you know, sure enough, I did. I, I you know, I changed my diet did things to manage stress. I mean, we could talk more about these things, uh, took certain supplements and did other things and, you know, got myself into remission and been in remission since 2009. And ever since then, I've been helping other people with not only hyperthyroidism, Graves' disease, but as you mentioned, you know, those with hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's. Congratulations. That's awesome. I want to go back to your story, though. So when you were having these symptoms and you went to your primary care, did he or she just start with the TSH or what labs? Did that provider run? No, I'm pretty sure they did a full thyroid panel. I know what, yeah. you know, with, as you know, with especially with hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's, a lot of times they'll just do a TSH and and even some or some primary care doctors, even if they suspect hyperthyroidism, they might mm-hmm. just do uh, for, and, and free. And honestly, honestly, I'm not sure. They might have not done a free T3. They might have just done a TSH. It, it was, again, quite a while ago. Sure. They might, but I'm pretty, they did not just the TSH. I'm pretty sure they did at least a free T4 and the TSH. And um, yeah, so, but they didn't do that. That's, that's the extent of it. If they did T3, that's all they did. They didn't do antibodies. It wasn't until I went to the endocrinologist that they did that. Well, let's kind of discuss the difference. And then maybe you can also tell us what you found with your labs, but kind of as far as antibodies go, but what's the difference between hyperthyroidism? So Graves disease, and then hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's? What's the difference for our listeners? We've talked a lot about low thyroid on this podcast, but not a lot about high thyroid. I kind of just answered that question. <laughs> you answered that question. Yeah. Well, you know, so as you said, like hyperthyroidism, you have elevated thyroid hormone levels. You, know, you mentioned TSH. So TSH is thyroid stimulating hormone, uh, which is a pituitary hormone. And so you mentioned you spoke a lot about hypothyroidism because it's a lot more common. And so when someone has lower thyroid hormone levels, which is you know, what hypothyroidism is, you know, sometimes it's many times actually subclinical hypothyroidism where it might be on the lower side, but within the lab reference range, but but not within the optimal range. But but either way, when you don't have enough thyroid hormone, the TSH signals to the thyroid to produce more thyroid hormone. So you want more of that TSH, more, more of that signal to tell the thyroid gland, okay, we need more thyroid hormone here. With hyperthyroidism, it's the opposite. Since you have too much, you know, the, the pituitary wants to slow things down. And, and I should mention the hypothalamus communicates with the pituitary. So it's not just the pituitary. And so, but, but yeah, so you have lower TSH levels, usually depressed TSH levels. You might see it on the lab, like as less than 0.001 or some will say less than 0.005. But it's still, it's undetectable because again, it's trying to stop the production of the thyroid hormone. So from a blood test standpoint, what you would see again, elevated thyroid hormone levels with hyperthyroidism and a depressed TSH, whereas with hypothyroidism, you would see elevated TSH with lower thyroid hormone levels. And with regards to the symptoms, if someone has lower thyroid hormone levels, then, you know, that slows things down. So as, uh, as you mentioned, I'm sure you discussed in the, during your podcast, some of the different symptoms with hypothyroidism. So fatigue, brain fog, coldness, sometimes constipation, you know, those are, you know, there's others, but those are some of the more common ones. And everything slows down, hair growth, metabolism, nail growth, bowels, brain, right? Everything Mm -hmm. slows down with low thyroid as compared to what you're about to say. with Hyperthyroidism, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) where, where it speeds up. Yeah. So when I dealt with hyperthyroidism, Graves disease, you know, I mentioned how I had an elevated resting heart rate, also had palpitations, had some tremors, 
And, you know, I mentioned the weight loss. Now, what it's a little bit tricky because not everybody with hyperthyroidism loses weight. Some people gain weight. Sometimes it's due to the medication because if you take antithyroid medication, that could cause you to gain weight. But but it's weird. Sometimes people, even without taking that, they're actually gaining weight. Then some people will get frustrated. You know, they're not happy if they had hyperthyroidism, but, but they'll be like, oh, you know, I wish I would have at least lost some weight, you know, since they look at the symptoms. But the classic symptom is weight loss and, you know, increased appetite. Also, I had sometimes looser stools you know, sometimes even diarrhea, anxiety is quite common, insomnia is quite common. So yeah, those are, and you know, hair loss, hair loss, you could, you know, mention when hypothyroidism, you know, like it affects like the growth of the hair and nails, even though, again, you could have hair loss also with hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's, definitely see a lot of hair loss in my hyperthyroid patients as well. Do we know how common hyperthyroidism is? We know that hypothyroidism is very common, but how common is hyper? Do we know any statistics on that? Yeah, so it's a little bit in the United States, a little bit less the prevalence, like one, I think it's like 0.8%. Oh, wow. I'm remembering that. And then in Europe, for some reason, it's a little bit higher. I think it's like 1.3% of the population. So significantly less common than hypothyroid. Correct. Yeah. What's the commonality with the labs meaning? You know, with autoimmune conditions, essentially, you can have elevated antibodies with both low and high. In your situation, it sounds like you did have elevated antibodies. Are you comfortable sharing like which ones were elevated, how high they were, kind of that that journey you've been on? Yeah, so there are different types of antibodies associated with different autoimmune conditions. So you're, you're absolutely right with both Hashimoto's and Graves, you have elevated antibodies. So the the antibodies associated with Graves are thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulins, um, also known as TSI. It's a type of TSH receptor antibody, so some practitioners will test TRAB. Usually, I just stick with the TSI. That's the more specific one, and you know, I, I just don't see the purpose of testing both of those. Some will do that, but... Before I get to like my experience as far as you know my my what what I tested positive for, I'll mention the other two antibodies, and that's thyroid peroxidase antibodies, TPO antibodies, which are more commonly associated with Hashimoto's, but a lot of people with Graves have them too. The the, the literature, depending on the source, will say anywhere between sixty and eighty percent of people with Graves will have those antibodies. You know, more common like ninety percent in those with Hashimoto's. And then there's the antithyroglobulin antibodies, which are more specific to Hashimoto's. And, you know, I see different combinations in my practice. So I see a lot of people with elevated TSI and elevated TPO. I see some people that have all three antibodies. And then, of course, with Hashimoto's, usually just going to see the TPO and the thyroglobulin. So in my experience, when I dealt with Graves, the only thing that was positive was TSI. My T, you know, I did have TPO antibodies that were negative and I had TP, um, the antithyroglobulin antibodies tested, they were negative. And, you know, as far as high, it's, I will say they've changed the ranges in some labs. As, as So like when I got the TSI, it was more of a percentage. And, uh, yeah, and that's changed at least when it comes to, I believe, LabCorp and like Quest Diagnostics, some, some labs, some other labs still use that percentage. Uh, my antibodies were, you know, like around the, the 230 to 40 range, uh, which is, you know, clearly elevated. You ideally want it, it depends on the lab. Some will say below 140, some will be say below 120. I would say extremely high is like greater than like 300, 400. And what's significant about that is that the higher the antibodies, it doesn't necessarily mean the worse the person will be. Like I've seen people with lower, antibody levels with elevated thyroid hormone levels, like like really high thyroid hormone levels, and the vice versa, where someone has really high antibody levels and their thyroid hormone levels are not as high, and it doesn't always correlate with the symptoms. But what it does seem to correlate with the antibodies is the incidence of what's called Graves ophthalmopathy or thyroid eye disease. Good amount of people, again, thankfully, I did not deal with thyroid eye disease, but a lot of my patients have. And, uh, you know, usually the higher the antibody level, the greater the risk of developing thyroid eye disease. It doesn't mean you will develop thyroid eye disease. But and then, like I mentioned, the labs are different. So they use I forget the actual units that they use. But, for example, most labs, it will be like less than 0.55 
And um, so, so again, if someone here is like mine was like, you know, in the two thirties, again, that wouldn't be the case now. Like it would usually like a real high number, you know, would be like in double digits, you know, like 10 or greater. I mean, I've seen people like well over that, but again, so it's hard to compare and there's really, I haven't found any way to convert the two values. There are still labs that use the percentage and some use the newer reference range. And it's a little frustrating because some people will come in and they'll have, you know, like a year's worth of antibodies, but they might have, they might be going back and forth and you can't really tell like what's necessarily what's going on as far as if there's any change, I guess. I mean, obviously if they're elevated, they're elevated and in the presence of hyperthyroidism and those elevated antibodies, it's diagnostic of graves, regardless of how high they are. You know, if they're even mildly high, they're still, you're still considered to have graves. Let's go back to antibodies. So does the elevated antibodies suggest autoimmune thyroid disease for the listeners? Yeah, I'm sure you know this. I mean, the antibodies come first before the thyroid gets out of range. So there's like an autoimmunity timeline and, you know, not just with thyroid antibodies, but with other antibodies. So there's, you know, certain factors that cause autoimmunity to develop, you know, triggers and having an increase in intestinal permeability. There's some genetics too, and increase in intestinal permeability, medical term for a leaky gut. But yeah, so those antibodies... You know, again, they develop, um, yeah, they take years to develop. The thing is that most doctors won't test the antibodies first. Or as you mentioned earlier, usually what happens is someone might be not feeling well, especially with hypothyroidism, you know, like they'll, you know, they might have fatigue and low, you know, low energy, gaining weight, but they might dismiss this as being, you know, thyroid, not even thinking about thyroid and, uh, you know, the doctor will run a TSH, maybe because the person's complaining, maybe just as part of a physical, and then maybe see that that's elevated. And then maybe they'll test the antibodies. Not all doctors will even do that. But even if you see those antibodies, they've probably been elevated for quite some time, you know, many times years. But from a medical perspective, like a conventional medical doctor, if they just see elevated autoantes by itself and everything looks good, they probably wouldn't say it's autoimmunity, you know, until everything like you can't again, like Graves disease is not diagnosed until the thyroid is out of range along with the antibodies and same with Hashimoto's. So if someone just were to have elevated TPO and or antithyroid globulin antibodies, and if the thyroid looked fine, at least from a lab reference range, Again, from a diagnostic standpoint, they wouldn't probably wouldn't diagnose the person with autoimmunity. But to me, there's definitely like an autoimmune process going on there. I agree. Yep. So I tell patients, like you're saying, TSH is more of the brain hormone, and T4 and T3 are more the thyroid hormones. And then when antibodies are elevated, those are more looking at the immune system, right? So if you have thyroid peroxidase antibody elevation, thyroid peroxidase enzyme is leaking out of your thyroid and your immune system is now creating antibodies, essentially attacking that. So those are the immune markers that, you know, definitely to me suggest that there's an autoimmune condition brewing here. So let's go back to what you just said, as far as diving into why people develop the autoimmune conditions. I know, let's spend some time here, you kind of rattled off a list of various things, but Let's go back to that. So there's something called triad of autoimmunity, also known as the three-legged stool of autoimmunity. So one of those factors is a genetic predisposition. And that's why I use the word remission. Like some people might wonder, well, why don't I just say I'm cured of graves? Because since 2009, I haven't had hyperthyroidism. My antibodies have been normal. So, you know, like, and again, I feel like I'm cured. I've had some scares along the way. I've had chronic Lyme disease and I've had shingles and other things that, you know, I thought might re-trigger the graves, but thankfully didn't. But because of that genetic predisposition, I'm always aware that it, it could come back, you know, if I don't maintain my health and we could even talk more about that. But so the genetic predisposition, um, second factor, exposure to one or more environmental triggers and there's different triggers. I mean, I go into great detail in my book, Hashimoto's Triggers, but I could talk about some, like the, there's four main categories of triggers I chat about. Um, one is food, such as gluten, you know, dairy, corn, salt. And this is according to the research. This is me just like throwing things out. Salt, um, salt too much salt, like can increase TH17 cells, which are associated with autoimmunity. You know, I, I recommend sea salt to my patients. I don't tell people like, avoid the salt. But if you're eating a lot of processed foods, I mean, the, the salt, the sodium will add up. And that could be at least a contributing factor, if not a trigger. 
And then the second category of trigger, stress. And it could be emotional stressors. It could be physical stressors. So one thing I mentioned is, you know, I was exercising, I was dieting, detoxifying, but I was, when it comes to exercising prior to my development of Graves, or at least prior to the diagnosis of Graves, I was overtraining. You know, I'm pretty sure I was overtraining and putting a lot of stress on my body. Uh, so there was definitely emotional stressors too, even though I was in denial. I, I was thinking, oh yeah, I, I know there's stress, but I, I was doing a good job of managing the stress until I looked at and I did an adrenal saliva test and saw how bad everything looked. And that made me realize the stress was impacting me. But but again, both physical stressors, emotional stressors um, could have an impact and could be a trigger causing dysregulation of the immune system or affecting the body in other ways, increasing, uh, contributing to that increase in intestinal permeability, that leaky gut, uh, which is our third tri- third component, which we'll talk about shortly. But third main trigger chemicals, you know, we live in a toxic world and, you know, it's not getting better, unfortunately. Uh, You know, there's heavy metals, there's xenoestrogens. I mean, there's so many different things we're exposed to and there's only so much we could do outside of the home, which is why you want to do as much as you can inside of your home, eating organic food, drinking purified water, uh, drink, uh, you know, using natural cleaners, cosmetics. And again, once you step outside, really not not a whole lot you could do. I mean, you could, you know, change like, again, if someone's live, you know, if their home is like right on a highway, you know, obviously it's not easy to move, but you got to consider things like that, like the location of where you live could also. So when you step outside, if you're in a more toxic environment, you know, that's going to take its toll. And, you know, you might not be in a position to move tomorrow or next week or next month. But again, if you're in a toxic more and, and again, it's like a no win situation because, you know, you go out to the middle of nowhere and they might be spraying, you know, with the farms and all that. So, again, it's but still some places arguably are worse than others. And then the fourth category of triggers infections. And this can include gut infections, uh, things, you know, parasites, H. pylori could include viruses uh, such as Epstein-Barr, you know, the most recent virus, you know, we've been dealing with. And uh, I mentioned chronic Lyme disease is something I dealt with and it, w- it didn't re-trigger it in my case, but can be a trigger of autoimmunity, Bardinella. And so those are the four main categories of triggers and like nutrient deficiency, some will say is a trigger to me. It's more of a like an underlying imbalance, like a contributing factor. Then that third component of the triad of autoimmunity, that increase in intestinal permeability, that leaky gut. And so that is another factor. And you know, these days, a lot of people do things to heal the gut, uh, which I think is great, but you need to remove the factor that's causing the leaky gut in the first place. So if it's gluten, and if all you do is drink bone broth or take L-glutamine, it's probably not going to help much until you remove the gluten. If you have a gut infection, you need to remove the gut infection. Um, so, but though that's really those, that try of autoimmunity, that three-legged stool is really, you know, how, how autoimmunity develops. That was good. Thank you. It's the time of year where many of my patients are ready to detox, cleanse, reset, whatever you want to call it. It's great to set goals with exercise and clean eating, but I'm going to be honest, you likely need more than that. At home, you likely are changing your furnace filters every quarter and you likely change the oil on your car with regular maintenance as well. But what are you doing for your body regularly to get rid of toxins you've accumulated? Each year, the average person is exposed to 14 pounds of pesticides, herbicides, food additives and preservatives. It's important to periodically restore your body's ability to cleanse itself and eliminate these toxins. Think of your liver as a glass of water. If you keep on pouring in the water, the glass will eventually get full and overflow. Similarly, our livers over our lifetime may accumulate a large amount of toxins, and those livers may need some assistance to clear them out. How can you help your liver? In short, consider a strategically designed, researched, structured liver cleanse program to help with phase 1 and phase 2 detox pathways. A program with ingredients like beet, artichoke, dandelion, milk thistle, and alpha-lipoic acid, which help your liver and gallbladder purge toxins, and then a fiber protein powder to bind these toxins so you can eliminate them. In my practice, I often recommend the Core Restore program, and I dedicated episode 43 entirely to it. The kit comes with day-by-day instructions on exactly how to change your lifestyle, how you eat, and what supplements to take. Staying healthy can be difficult, which is why simple cleanses like the Core Restore program can help you to get back on track and pilot you into better behaviors. Please don't start this program if you have active gallstones or diabetes without consulting with your medical provider. And this is also not for those who are pregnant or nursing. 
From personal experience, this type of program will help you feel better, lose weight, release stored toxins, and benefit your entire body. Check out more product information on our website, yourlongevityblueprint.com, and use code LIVERDETOX for 10% off either chocolate or vanilla Core Restore products. Now, let's get back to the show. So is there a specific diet that you recommend for patients with Graves or Hashimoto's? Before answering that question, I'll say there's no perfect diet that fits everyone, and, and you, you're aware of that. I think a lot of practitioners, including myself, we you know we have our favorite diets just because we see results. Like I, I think what we all have in common as functional medicine practitioners is we want people to eat whole, healthy foods, avoid refined foods and sugars. You know the common allergens. Make make sure you avoid those unhealthy oils. Yeah, and then, you know, like should someone follow a paleo diet or carnivore diet or vegan diet or autoimmune paleo diet or low FODMAP diet? I mean, there's so many different diets out there. I I do like autoimmune protocol, the AIP diet. And to me, it's a starting point. So it doesn't mean that it's a permanent diet, but it also serves as a good elimination diet because you're eliminating the common allergens, you're eliminating foods that could be harsh on the gut. There's they, There are people I work with who... I mean, I don't think anybody truly wants to do it. Like, no, I don't think people look forward to it, but there are people like, uh, I don't know if I could do it. And I mean, I didn't know if I could do, you know, as far as when I was dealt with Graves, the diet part, I didn't know if I could, you know, clean up my diet. And back then there was an AIP. So I honestly started out with more like a regular paleo diet. And even that at the time was hard. Now it's what I follow. You know, I follow more of a regular or kind of like a modified paleo diet these days. Um, but yeah, you know, if someone absolutely is like, oh, I just can't follow AIP again, paleo is a pretty good diet as well. You know, if someone's a vegan vegetarian, it's going to be very difficult to follow AIP, you know, and even maybe paleo to some extent. So we might need to make some modifications. And so, yeah, so again, AIP is a starting point for a lot of my patients, but it depends on the person. You know, it depends. I mean, we're, if we're talking about Graves and Hashimoto's, you know, those are autoimmune conditions. If someone comes in with like, if I work with someone who has a non-autoimmune hyperthyroid condition, for example, or I guess even non-autoimmune hypothyroid, then again, maybe just a paleo diet would be fine for them. So so it is to some extent individualized, but like I said, a, a good starting point for me or for the people I work with is an AIP elimination type diet. I've had some patients try to barter with me like who have autoimmune conditions because they love their gluten or they love their dairy or whatnot. Do you let patients barter with you? Do you run food sensitivity testing? Like, So if someone had an autoimmune thyroid condition and gluten didn't show up on their food test, do you, would you still recommend they avoid gluten? I can tell you, I would tell them yes, because I don't think gluten helps anything. But what's your opinion on that? How would you approach that? Yeah, no, there's, it's ultimately up to the person, but there's no negotiating. Like you're not going to get, <laughs> you're not going to get permission from me to eat gluten or dairy. So I, I can't follow the person around. But so I, I take a similar approach. It's, you know, someone absolutely cannot give up the coffee because I usually will recommend give up the caffeine. You know, that I think is a little bit negotiable. Like someone's drinking like three, four cups of coffee a day and they're like, Oh, I'm down to one cup a day. You know, low, okay, let's that you might still be okay with the coffee. I mean, I still prefer for people to completely eliminate it while restoring their health. Um, but there are some health benefits to coffee, and everybody's different. Some people are, you know, fast metabolized of course, coffee might do fine. Some people, their adrenals aren't as bad. But yeah, gluten, you know, yeah, I, I don't tell if someone says, oh, can I have like gluten every now and then or you know, just like once a week or once a month. I'm, I'm, you know, I tell them that, you know, like everybody's different and some people, even if they have it once in a while, it can cause inflammation and, and set them back. So, you know, I don't want to, you know, my goal is not to be mean to anybody. That's not the reason behind the diet. It's just that I don't want someone to be working with me for a few months, not be improving. And then, and then we say at that point, oh, well, you've only been 95% gluten-free. Maybe, you know, if you were 100% gluten-free, you know, you would be receiving the results you'd want to receive. And, you know, to be fair, diet's not the only answer. So someone could be 100% gluten-free, 100% dairy-free and not receiving good results. But at least I could say, all right, we know for sure it's not the gluten. We know it's not the dairy, you know, where someone is straying from the diet, we have no idea. Is it something else or is it because you're straying? So either way, I definitely recommend for people to be strict with those. Agreed. Okay, let's talk about iodine. So I want to know, 
of course, I'll voice my opinion here first, but I want to know if you feel like iodine is beneficial or harmful to those with thyroid conditions. Because personally, I've seen it help some cases, hurt other cases. And interestingly, about a year ago, I interviewed Alan Christensen, whose episode launched as part of uh, Thyroid Awareness Month, which I think is February. No, it's actually this month. Oh, is it January? It's actually January. Okay. (laughs) And he is very, um, I don't want to say anti, but he definitely recommends one uh, monitor and limit their iodine consumption. And so, and I know there are differences in opinions on this. So do you feel like iodine is beneficial or harmful to thyroid, specifically autoimmune thyroid conditions, I should say? Yeah, a common question. And I did read uh, Dr. Christensen's book as well, The Thyroid Reset Diet. So, and it's funny because things definitely have changed over the years as far as our perspective of iodine. So when I dealt with Graves again, 2008, a lot of people, a lot of practitioners were recommending high dose iodine. And when I went to, you know, those conferences I mentioned to learn about, you know, like functional endocrinology, they were definitely in favor of iodine. So iodine at the time was actually part of my protocol. And I was one of the people that did well with iodine. And so as a result, after that, for at least the first few years, I would be like, okay, everybody's getting a urinary iodine test. And then most people are deficient. So you're going to be on, you know, not only iodine, but like higher dose iodine. You know, I read Dr. David Brownstein's book years ago. Yeah. And so I was a believer that everybody needed iodine. But like you, then I started seeing, you know, I, I saw people who didn't do well with iodine. And then more research came out. You know, Dr. Tatis Karazian is one that, you know, really like is, I won't say anti-iodine, but just educated practitioners about, you know, the risk associated with iodine. You know, so my perspective, it definitely has changed, but I'm not anti-iodine, I think. So I don't know if like someone needs to be like consuming less than 200 micrograms of iodine or 200 micrograms or less, which is what, you know, Dr. Christensen says. I think it does depend on the person. And, but that being said, I, I am cautious about having people take separate iodine supplements. So I, you know, I definitely don't take the same approach where like iodine testing is not part of my current, you know, routine. And um, yeah, whereas, yeah, so, you know, any mineral deficiency needs to eventually be corrected, but I don't think it's like, it's essential, you know, like taking iodine. And again, it can potentially exacerbate the autoimmune response, be a potential trigger. And I actually talk about that in Hashimoto's Triggers, my book, there's a chapter dedicated to iodine. So whereas in my book, Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves, I really didn't say, at least I don't think I said much, too many things that were negative about iodine. When I wrote the book, Hashimoto's Triggers, that was years later, more research has come had come out. And again, I labeled it as a trigger. It's not a trigger in everybody, but it could be. And uh, another example, if someone's taking a multivitamin, I honestly won't recommend a iodine free multivitamin. I don't usually I don't. Yeah, I don't see. I, I think the opposite could be harmful too. like trying to really restrict all iodine from your diet. So I, to me, it's like, you know, if you take a multivitamin with iodine, usually I'll have like seven, 75 to 150 micrograms. And, you know, if you're eating some other foods that have iodine, that's usually fine. If someone's eating you know, like, uh, you know, sea vegetables, then I might be like, uh, you know, like you're eating seaweed and kelp, that's higher amounts of iodine, then I might be more cautious. But if someone's eating eggs, which isn't part of a AIP diet, but it's part of a paleo diet, I'm not going to tell the person not to eat eggs because there's iodine in the eggs. And, you know, it's a, and I haven't seen problems, at least not with the eggs from an iodine standpoint, or at least I don't think it's an iodine standpoint when someone has an issue with, with eggs. It's usually, you know, a sensitivity or something, you know, something like that. But yeah, it's, so it's, it is complex with iodine. I would say I'm more pro iodine, meaning that I'm not like, you know, everybody has to completely eliminate iodine, you know, from all their supplements, like multivitamins in the food. But I am cautious with iodine because like you, I've seen people, you know, I've had, you know, I remember someone reached out, it wasn't a patient, but the, like someone reached out to me and they, on their own, not through my recommendations, like uh, they supplemented with iodine and they developed thyroid eye disease. You know, they, they, at least if they had, it was mild. And I remember the email, this was years ago, just saying how, it, you know, now like their eyes, you know, are, you know, inflamed and, uh, you know, just, you know, so, I mean, it's scary enough when someone isn't symptomatic, but then you do a retest and it like 
spikes up their TPO antibodies. And especially if that's the only thing they did was mm-hmm. just take iodine. Yeah. Anyway, so again, like I said, I, I, I'm cautious, not against yeah. iodine, but cautious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would say that that's my current stance too. So I, I used to use more iodine again because I see more low thyroid cases. And I thought, well, if iodine's a building block for T3 and T4, these patients must need some of it. And on their urine iodine excretion test, they'd be low. So, you know, I would use some of it. I got to kind of more liberal use of it, I'd say. And then I started to experience some challenges with my patients. And they too sometimes would put themselves on very high dosages. And I saw two things. I saw elevated TPO antibodies, not in everybody, like you're saying, but some people would see the spike. And clearly in those patients, I'd say, let's get rid of the iodine. And antibodies would usually go down. And I also have seen elevated TSH, just not correlate with T3 and T4, but just incidental TSH spikes with iodine use. I had some patients actually put themselves into hyperthyroid crises. A couple landed in the emergency room at one point, not at my advice, but they themselves just were taking, you know, high dose iodine and it really backfired. It actually caused hyperthyroidism. And then over the next several months, getting them off the iodine, we tracked their levels and they became normal again. <laughs> so I've, I've seen it go both ways. I've seen it help and I've seen it hurt. And so I'm also very cautious. But what I found super interesting about Dr. Allen's um, book was that he's saying, could it be, you know, he was kind of proposing, could it be that when patients go gluten and dairy free, it's not just that they're removing inflammatory foods, they're reducing their iodine. And I had just never thought of that before. And so maybe that's part of why patients tend to do better also when they're on, you know, anti-inflammatory eating, they're lessening their iodine. But I think that's a complex, I don't know, topic that we can't break down in, you know, five minutes on the podcast. But it sounds like we're very much in the same boat. We're just cautious with its use because I think some people need a little bit and some people overdo it. So we need to monitor labs and track patients and their symptoms to determine who should be taking it. Yeah. What about goitrogenic foods? So a lot of patients, we have a hormone clinic, we use a lot of DIM, which is an extract from cruciferous vegetables, putting a lot of my patients, females and males on it. And they always say, oh, I can't take that. It'll impact my thyroid negatively. And I'm already borderline whatnot. So and usually I say, you're fine, you can take the DIM. But what's your opinion on any kind of concerns with goitrogenic foods for thyroid conditions? Yeah. So again, for those who are unfamiliar with goitrogens, they as far as food based, like Cruciferous vegetables considered goitrogenic, so they could potentially, speaking of iodine, inhibit the uptake of iodine, potentially inhibit thyroid function. And so some are concerned because there are some studies in rodents. I'm pretty sure there are still no human studies out there. Even in the rodents, it was larger amounts of the cruciferous that, that cause, you know, like goiters. And uh, so I really haven't seen that in my patients. I can't say there's no exceptions like where, you know, I've had maybe over the years, you know, where I could count on my hand, you know, the number of people who said, oh, yeah, you know, I've been eating broccoli and I feel that my thyroid is swelling. And it's like, well, maybe in your, your case, it's goitrogenic and, you know, listen to your body. I would never tell someone to keep on doing something if something like that's happening. But an interesting story is, as you know, I deal with a lot of hyperthyroid patients and you know, years ago, I had one of the dilemmas with hyperthyroidism is during pregnancy because a lot of women don't want to take the antithyroid medication. And so, like when I dealt with Graves, I took an herb called bugleweed that has antithyroid properties. But if someone's pregnant, it's there's really no research on bugleweed. So, I, you know, so it's not really indicated. So, really, most women will take PTU, there's methimazole which is the most common type of antithyroid medication, at least here in the United States. But but that's also usually not given in the first trimester. So it's usually a PTU. And then they also read the potential side effects of the antithyroid meds, like causing liver problems and other things. So they want nothing to do with it. So I actually experimented. I know this sounds scary, experimenting with you know pregnant women, but it wasn't a real bad experiment. It was having them eat a lot of healthy cruciferous vegetables in an attempt to see if it would lower the thyroid hormone levels naturally. And maybe, they, you know, I can't tell them not to take the medication, but they were just doing it on their own, not taking it. I'm like, okay, let's just load up on the broccoli, the kale, the the cauliflower, the Brussels sprouts. Maybe your gut s- can handle it. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. You know, as long as you're not getting like all this bloating or all that, it didn't really make much of a difference in the thyroid hormone levels. So I intentionally gave people higher amounts of the cruciferous vegetables to try to have the effect that some suggested has. I didn't have like one person where they took it in like, oh, yeah, this is actually working. So, yeah, I would not be concerned, of, definitely not concerned about like the DIM supplements. But I think the thing is also most people are not eating 
too many cruciferous vegetables and, and as well raw. as raw. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're usually like cooking it. But again, the quantity, I, I don't know about you, but in my practice, I still have to encourage people to eat more vegetables. It's not like, hey, I'm eating too many like cruciferous vegetables. So that, but, and like you said, usually it's not like the raw cruciferous vegetables and cooking the vegetables, you know, as opposed to reduce the goitrogenic properties. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I want to get into different treatment options, specifically per, for high perthyroidism. Um, so maybe share with us on your journey, some of the things you took. So you just mentioned I always get ahead of myself. I start talking and then my brain says, wait, go back. <laughs> but I was going to say, you mentioned you use a bugle weed. I wanted, I'd like to know some other um, agents you use with your patients. But I also think maybe before we get to natural treatments, we should discuss conventional treatments for hyperthyroidism. So you kind of mentioned the mythamizole, whatnot. Kind of tell us how some of those medications work. So the conventional approach to hyperthyroidism and then kind of what you did in the natural approach. Let's differentiate both of those. Yeah, so the antithyroid drugs, um, methimazole, most commonly given, PTU is another one. Um, and then in uh, some other countries like the United Kingdom, they'll give like carbimazole, which converts into the methimazole. And they, you know, essentially block the production of thyroid hormone, uh, inhibit the production of thyroid hormone. And, uh, you know, that's obviously a good thing when you have too much thyroid hormones. The, the, the problem is side effects are common. Um, sometimes they'll raise liver enzymes. Sometimes they'll depress white blood cell count. They, if you get, if you are on those medications, m- most endocrinologists will look. They'll do like a CBC with differential, comprehensive metabolic panel. But if not, you want to make sure you know that they do because some I've seen some that maybe they don't have as much experience with hyperthyroidism with with Graves, and they won't you know do those those tests. And then you know sometimes it causes other side effects, like it might cause dizziness or rashes. You know, obviously that's not fun. So a lot of people tolerate it okay, though. You know, again, it sounds scary, but, you know, everything's risk versus benefits. And a lot of people do need the antithyroid meds. Not everybody I work with is on bugleweed, which we'll talk about. You know, a lot of people are on the medication. And if it's working well, you know, keep in mind, even the the herbs that we're going to talk about, they're not addressing the cause of the problem. You know, we just want to keep you safe while ideally trying to address the cause of the problem. So there's the antithyroid meds, there's beta blockers. So and usually with hyperthyroidism, they'll give beta blockers that inhibit the conversion of T4 to T3 as well. So the beta blocker like also slows down, like the, it affects the cardiovascular system, slows down everything like the resting heart rate. But there's one that's commonly given called propranolol, which also inhibits conversion of T4, T- T- converts into T3. So it's inhibiting that conversion. So I don't know percentage wise, but most of the people I work with are just on the methimazole, let's say, or antithyroid medication, other, you know, PTU. But some people are put on both meds. Those are the most two common medications prescribed by endocrinologists. I mean, there's others like LDN, which you're familiar with, but most endocrinologists don't give LDN for like some of what hyperthyroidism. So I don't know if you want me to cover that or if you want me to just jump into like the natural agents. Yeah, this is triggering more questions. So from a conventional model like standpoint, are these patients put on medication short-term or long-term? Like what's the expectation for some of these patients? Is it more symptom relief? Like with the beta blocker, or is it, you know, we're going to keep you on this medication until your labs normalize? Like, usually, what's the duration of the treatment of these medications? At least with the antithyroid medication, like with methimazole, and especially in the case of Graves, uh, usually they'll put the person on for 18 to 24 months and just um, hope by the end of that, the time the person will be not, you know, so called remission, like where their numbers look good. Uh, but a lot of those people will relapse because because nothing was done to address the cause of the problem. And in other types of hyperthyroid conditions, it'll vary, like subacute thyroiditis. Usually it's transient, so some people won't even be put on the antithyroid medication because those people will a lot of times become hypo after a month or two or a few months. And then there's toxic multinodule goiter. And it depends. So, like that, the person's not just going to go into remission um, with that, you know, because it's it's involving the the nodules that's involved in the production of thyroid hormone. So a lot of endocrinologists don't even want to put the person with toxic multinodule goiter on the meds. They want to just remove the thyroid or you know give the radioactive iodine. Yeah, you know, talk that about that. So how how does radioactive iodine treatment work? Yeah, no, I'm glad. Yeah, I'm glad we got here too. Because yeah, with radioactive iodine, 
you know, you swallow, essentially swallowing a, a pill of radioactive. What happens, the thyroid gland, it uptakes the radioactive iodine and it destroys, it essentially is damaging the, the cells of the thyroid gland. And so if I had to choose, I don't know if I'd want, like, again, not that surgery doesn't come with this risk, but just the thought of, you know, taking, receiving radioactive iodine and they're, again, the precautions, people, like when they have radioactive iodine, you're not supposed to be around your family for a certain period of time, you know, even like sharing the toilet and things like that, you're not supposed to do. So it makes you think, well, you know, would I want to take something like that where you're not supposed to, you know, be near people and they quarantine you, quarantine you in some countries with the radioactive iodine? But essentially, they're trying to damage, uh, the, you know, we're trying to avoid the surgery. And, you know, some will think it's a safer way of, just, you know, this way you don't have to do surgery. Just swallow the pill, damages the thyroid gland. Again, problem is, again, you could have side effects. But then there are some people where it doesn't work. They'll need to get multiple rounds of radioactive iodine if they choose to do so. Some people after getting one round and it comes back, they're like, OK, I've had enough. But then there are others that will get a second or a third round. I'm not the biggest fan of radioactive iodine. And again, there is a time and place for like surgery without question. So then to me, you know, ultimately it's up to the person. But like I said, if I had to choose between radioactive iodine and surgery, I, I think I would probably go with the surgery. Again, the goal obviously is to try to prevent people from getting the surgery radioactive iodine, just because a lot of, unfortunately, there are uh, uh, over the years, I've had so many people get these treatment procedures who never tried to do anything from a natural standpoint. And, you know, not to say the natural treatments are 100% effective. I mean, nothing's 100% effective, even again, surgery or radioactive. Well, surgery, once you remove the thyroid gland, you're not going to be hyper. But again, you could, you know, damage the parathyroid glands, which, you know, once that happens, um, you know, that's irreversible. And or some some of it, it could be, it depends on on how badly they're damaged. But Anyway, there's, yeah, so risk versus benefits, you know, to me, obviously, I'm going to be biased because, you know, I practice like you functional medicine and, you know, I want to do things to try to improve the health of the person. And then if their health doesn't improve, you know, and again, they could take the medication while trying to improve their health. But once, you know, the radioactive iodine, the surgery are just so extreme. And once you get those, there's no turning back. Yep. I get asked all the time, what's one product that I just can't live without when it comes to maintaining my own health and longevity? And my answer is something you've actually heard me mention on several episodes. It's called Mitochondrial Complex, and it's pretty much the Cadillac of multivitamins. And it's packed with antioxidants, including three key players, acetyl-L-carnitine, alpha-lipoic acid, and N-acetylcysteine. Think of a steam engine that requires coal to be continually shoveled into the furnace to power the train forward. Acetyl-L-carnitine does that for your body by shoveling short-chain fatty acids into your cells to provide your body with energy. This is an absolutely essential task to keeping you running. However, what's a byproduct of fire? You guessed it, smoke. Unfortunately, in this analogy, smoke from fire equals free radicals. To combat those free radicals, other antioxidants are needed, and that's where alpha-lipoic acid and N-acetylcysteine come in. Together, they scavenge free radicals and help boost and recharge glutathione, the most potent antioxidant in the body. To top it off, mitochondrial complex also contains a little bit of green tea extract, broccoli seed extract with sulforaphane, and even resveratrol. Research has shown that when athletes and individuals that are under stress begin taking this product, they are less likely to get sick, as they're giving their body what it needs to conquer those stressors. Who doesn't need protection from stress and cellular damage at this time? I certainly do. I take this product every day. If you're interested in learning more about how mitochondrial complex can help support you living a longer, healthier life, check out my blog post on why antioxidants are important found at yourlongevityblueprint.com forward slash why dash antioxidants dash are dash important or in chapter four of my book, Your Longevity Blueprint. To get 10% off our mitochondrial complex, just use code energy when checking out at yourlongevityblueprint.com. Now let's get back to the show. So on the contrary, what are some of the natural treatment options? And like, what did you consider and what do you use with your patients? Yeah, so bugleweed is one of the natural agents I took. It's an herb that has antithyroid properties. Yeah, it worked really well with me. Works, you know, I'd say about 70, 75% of the time in patients. Um, so again, but there is that 25, 30% of the time it doesn't work. And that's why if someone is taking the meds and if they're tolerating it well, I would never... I mean, I, I don't have prescribing rights, so I wouldn't tell anyone anyway to stop taking the meds. But even if I could, I wouldn't tell them to take them, stop the meds, take the bugleweed because we don't know 
for sure if it'll help. But if someone isn't taking anything, that's usually what I'll start them off with. I'll say, well, why don't you try taking the bugleweed since you're not taking a medication? And, you know, if they don't want to take the meds, again, that's up to them. I will never tell them to not take it. But then there's motherwort. So motherwort also I took. It works on the cardiovascular symptoms. So I was, you know, the bugleweed was helping, but I was still having some heart palpitations and I took the motherwort and that pretty much helped to eliminate the palpitations. Um, there's lemon balm. Lemon balm has a calming effect. And uh, so I didn't take lemon balm when I dealt with Graves. And usually when I give it, it's usually like at night, like for people having issues with sleep, although they can drink some, some people like to drink lemon balm tea, which is perfectly fine. L-carnitine. So L-carnitine in higher doses. So if someone's taking like 500 milligrams of L-carnitine, it's not going to have this, you know, antithyroid properties, but research shows that taking between two and 4,000 milligrams could actually not only have antithyroid properties, but there's one study that shows it could be effective even in cases of a thyroid storm, you know, which is really a severe case of hyperthyroidism. Now, I don't know if I would agree with that, meaning that if someone was in a thyroid storm, I would tell them to go to the ER and not to take higher doses of L-carnitine. Definitely, I wouldn't try the natural approach if you have a thyroid storm. But it's interesting that I actually mentioned that in one of the journal articles. And so, you know, the L-carnitine lithium, you know, has a lithium carbonate, you know, commonly given for depression, or at least in the past, commonly given for depression. They found that it has antithyroid, makes um, people hypo. And so some practitioners will give, some will give lithium carbonate, but that requires a prescription. So from a natural perspective, is lithium orotate, which um, isn't as potent, but um, but that's another option. Then, you know, getting back to the iodine. So again, I don't take this approach, but iodine, you mentioned how, you know, if someone has low thyroid, in some cases, it might make sense. Usually not because usually it's Hashimoto's and it's autoimmune. But if someone had an iodine deficiency, then it could cause hypothyroidism. And then if you supplement iodine, it could potentially correct that deficiency. But higher doses of iodine can also have the opposite effect at times. It could induce hyperthyroidism, like you mentioned, but it could also sometimes suppress mm-hmm. hyperthyroidism. So it's weird the way it works. But again, there is, there is yep. there's that risk associated with that. So we won't, you know, we won't talk anymore about iodine. But those, yeah, those essentially are the symptom management agents that, from a natural perspective, that I'll recommend for people with hyperthyroidism. What about green tea? I've used green tea extract in the past. Have you used that one? Um, to inhibit thyroid? Mm-hmm. No, no, I have okay, I've not okay. um, used it to, to inhibit thyroid hormone. Or what about soy? I know soy is another interesting option, but... Yeah, so I have not, you know, so I usually recommend for people to avoid soy, you know, even those, it just for other reasons. I mean, I think when someone's in a better state of health, I'm not against them eating like organic fermented soy, but while they're trying to improve their health, it's, you know, it's an a- common allergen. And of course, a lot of it is genetically modified, but even if it's totally. organic, there's other reasons, so... Anything else you did on your journey and like how you mentioned earlier in the podcast, there are things you do to maintain your health, to reduce graves from coming back. So before we kind of conclude the show, are there any other things that you're doing or that you do with your patients that you didn't mention yet today? Well, stress management was a big factor with me. So obviously I stopped the overtraining. So I still exercise. You want to listen to your body more. Is it necessarily better? The stress management, I block out time every day for stress. For stress for management. You. Yeah. Yeah. But what's important when I say that, it's not like, you know, like I, I know not a lot of people, but like I remember there's one one practitioner I remember hearing how every morning he blocks out like two hours for meditation. Yeah. And yeah, I, I don't have that kind of time. Definitely yeah. don't do that. <laughs> so what I usually tell people is I try to do at least 10, 15 minutes a day. So again, it's not like I'm even doing an hour a day. Sometimes I'll go longer than that and maybe like 20, 30 minutes. But I tell people start with five minutes just to get in the routine of blocking out, you know, just if, just like exercise, you want to get in the routine. And if someone starts with 20 minutes or even 15 minutes, they might just do it a few days a week. But I think it's important to do it um, on a daily basis. And then one other thing I'll mention that I think is, has been huge when it comes to maintaining my health is just constantly working on reducing my toxic load. Just because I mentioned earlier the impact of environmental toxins, but it's difficult because we don't see them. But yeah, so doing things like sauna therapy, you know, I do that a few days per week, uh, definitely not a few times per day, a few days per week, uh, infrared sauna, and then, you know, try to do as much as I can through, um, you know, diet as well. 
you know, sometimes I'll do like supplements to support detoxification as well. But yeah, the stress management, you know, of course, eating well, reducing toxic load, you know, and then of course, sleep, you know, trying to get sufficient sleep. So those, those are really, you know, big things as far as uh, maintenance, you know, maintaining my health perspective. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. We should go back to LDN really quick because I do use that in my autoimmune cases and it many times, not for everybody, but in many cases, it will lower thyroid antibodies. So what's your opinion on LDN use? So I like LDN. The problem is, at least what I've seen is that it's hit or miss. So it doesn't work with everybody. And, and you know, interestingly enough, so I don't, you know, again, I can't prescribe LDN, but I interviewed someone on my podcast who prescribes it. And, and he said that he deals more with Hashimoto's patients as well, but also with some graves. But he says he doesn't see it for, he doesn't know why, but he doesn't see it as effective in those with graves as with Hashimoto. So I, that was the first time I heard that, you know, with me, I see more people with hyperthyroidism than, than Hashimoto. So it's hard to make that comparison, but either way, yep. I think, yeah, I think it's, the challenge is when you have high thyroid hormone levels, you want them down quickly. Yes. And so you don't yep. have time to, you yep. know, to, so, so I think it could be beneficial for someone who's under control already with the antithyroid meds. And then if they want to take that in combination, you just got, as you know, you got to be careful because you were taking thyroid hormone or antithyroid meds and you're modulating the immune system, you might not need as much of the medication. So, you you know, you might become more hyper or hypo depending on what condition, you know, what condition you're dealing with. I totally agree that I haven't used it in hyperthyroidism, but in hypo, for many of my patients, again, it's hit or miss, but for the patients who it is lowering antibodies for typically thyroid function picks up and we have to lessen their medication. So that I would agree with that. Well, as we wrap up the show here, tell us where listeners can find you. And I know you have a thyroid checklist. So tell us about that. Yeah. So, uh, so they could, you know, visit thyroidchecklist.com where they could pretty much in the thyroid checklist, I discuss the different triggers associated with uh, Graves Hashimoto's, a, a deeper dive than, than I did here. So if you want to find out more about the triggers of Graves and Hashimoto's, that checklist I think you'll find to be helpful. I have also my website, Natural Endocrine Solutions is my ma main website. I have hundreds of blog posts and articles related to Graves, Hashimoto's, you know, non-autoimmune thyroid conditions as well, as well as my podcast, which I recently interviewed you as well. And so uh, my podcast is Save My Thyroid, which I actually have a separate website for that, SaveMyThyroid.com. But you could also just type in Save My Thyroid in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you want to listen. And then my my books that you mentioned earlier, uh, Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves Disease and Hashimoto's Triggers, both of which you could find on Amazon. Awesome. Social media? Are you on social media? Social media, f Facebook. I'm actually not on Instagram, but I'm on Facebook. I have some Facebook groups, some uh, one um, called Save Your Thyroid Facebook group, and uh, which is actually for both Graves and Hashimoto's patients. And then I have one just specifically for hyperthyroidism. Um, but then also YouTube. I'm on, um, I do have a YouTube, YouTube channel, Natural Thyroid Doctor, where all the guest interviews that I pop, you know, with the podcast, it eventually goes onto the YouTube channel. Eventually I'll do TikTok. Haven't done TikTok yet. And, um, and Instagram, we'll see. I don't know if I'll do Instagram, but so far I'm not. Still a lot of places. Yeah. What's your top longevity tip? As I mentioned to you in the beginning, I listened to some of the other podcast episodes. So I knew this was coming and still it's hard to choose like one thing to, if I had to say one, I'll go, I mean, the stress management's big, but I'll go the toxic load, the reducing your toxic load, just because it's something that constantly being bombarded with these toxins, environmental toxins. And it doesn't mean you have to do like infrared sauna if you can. That's great. I should say infrared, if you have hyperthyroidism, you might want to be cautious because that'll also raise the heart rate. Should mention that. But you could do other things. Again, there's, you know, eating plenty of vegetables, including cruciferous vegetables to support detoxification, as well as, you know, supplementation, trying to minimize exposure, organic food, natural cleaners and cosmetics, which I mentioned earlier. So if I had to choose one, again, it is tough and we could easily say diet or stress management, but I'll go with the reducing toxic load. Great. I sat in my sauna last night, so I'm on my way. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This was great. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing natural ways for us to improve thyroid and really immune health. Awesome. This is great. Thank you so much. 
It was great to be able to discuss high thyroid conditions on the show and hear his opinion on triggers. I absolutely agree that inflammatory foods, stress, toxins, and infections can all contribute to autoimmunity. And like he said, he has to work daily to maintain his health and prevent his hyperthyroidism from representing itself. Be sure to check out his podcast, Save My Thyroid, and the thyroid checklist he mentioned, links of which will be in the show notes. Be sure to check out my book, Your Longevity Blueprint. And if you aren't much of a reader, you're in luck. You can now take my course online where I walk you through each chapter in the book. Plus, for a limited time, the course is 50% off. Check this offer out at yourlongevityblueprint.com and click the course tab. One of the biggest things you can do to support the show and help us reach more listeners is to subscribe to the show. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I do read all the reviews and would truly love to hear your suggestions for show topics, guests, and for how you're applying what you've learned on the show to create your own longevity blueprint. This podcast is produced by Team Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, wellness is waiting. The information provided in this podcast is educational. No information provided should be considered to be or used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always consult with your personal medical authority.